0: Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Security Ledger podcast. I'm your host, Paul Roberts, editor at the Security Ledger. Endpoint security is one of the hardest problems in the corporate world today. For one thing, many companies are locked into legacy technology like antivirus, either by regulations or inertia, and it's no secret in the industry that these tools, which still rely heavily on threat signatures, do a poor job detecting new threats. What's clear is that a new approach to endpoint security is desperately needed, and that's why our guest today, Greg Hoagland, started his latest company, Outlier Security, which is offering what's described as agentless endpoint threat detection and response technology. Greg, if you don't know of him, is a pioneer in the computer security industry and a recognized expert on many facets of security technology, including RootKits, Software Exploitation, Buffer Overflows, and Online Game Hacking. He has founded and sold two companies, Sensic and H.B. Gary, and he's also authored a bunch of books, Exploiting Software, How to Break Code, RootKits, Subverting the Windows Kernel, and Exploiting Online Games, Cheating Massively Distributed Systems. He's a frequent speaker at Black Hat, RSA, and other security conferences, and we're thrilled to have him here on the Security Ledger. Greg, welcome. Good morning, Paul. It's good to talk to you again.
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: Okay, so... Endpoint security is a topic that I think everybody thinks that they understand or know everything about. But you have a new approach or a new way of doing things that is an improvement. Tell us about Outlier and tell us about what this new approach to endpoint is.
1: I think the industry as a whole understands that there's a wealth of information available at the endpoints within the enterprise. And there are a number of new companies emerging to take advantage of that data. The thing that makes Outlier a little different is that we're not using an agent based technology to access that information. Um, the kinds of information I'm talking about is essentially anything that software behavior would record onto a, onto a computer. So software is by proxy the way that a human being interacts with cyberspace. Software is also the source or destination for all of the packet traffic that you know goes over the perimeter, um, and I think ultimately software behavior is what induces the log messages that eventually arrive at your sim. So a lot of the information that's already being collected and analyzed in the enterprise is ultimately rooted in software behavior. But at the sim, there is. Um, a lack of depth to the information that can be interrogated about that behavior, I might be able to see that something happened. But if I need to ask more detailed questions about what led up to that something or what was attached to that something, et cetera, those questions really can't be answered using analytical tools at the SIM today because of the depth of information is not available. Hence, enter the endpoint. The endpoint records, forensically speaking and otherwise, by default, naturally, as software does things. For example, if software touches a file at a record and access time or a modification time in the file system, if it performs a function of some kind on a Microsoft Windows system in particular, most of the subsystems in that OS uh, are going to interact with the registry on the computer at some level. And those also will result in timestamp modifications, creation of additional values, etc., all of which can be accessed. So if you, if you know how to structure your query into this kind of morass of data, if you will, if you know how to structure your query intelligently, you can extract patterns or fingerprints of behavior. And I call that a splash pattern. Essentially, the actions that a software program takes will record these splash patterns, if you will, into the existing components and subsystems of the operating system.
0: And is that, true? No. is that true even when the malware is, is designed to cover its tracks, to undo any you know, registry changes or um, uh, you know, uh, traces that it might create in the process of installing itself?
1: Well, that's a really good question. Um, in particular, malware may be designed to try to hide certain activities. The problem is that in, in nearly all examples that I've run across in the field, the malware must interact with other components on the system at some level. In particular, to install itself, to survive, and be persistent on the on the machine uh, long term, um, to change from you know a ring three application to a ring zero kernel mode rootkit, um, to store something on the file system, etc., all requires some level of interaction with these other components. All of these components are performing this sort of natural recording process of making these patterns that can be extracted out of the system. So it's very, very difficult to make a piece of malware completely invisible. Um, Not to say that it wouldn't be difficult to maybe apply some level of anti-forensics techniques, but I recently ran across, there's a very, very good uh, and dangerous, I should say, rootkit called Zero Access out there. And I recently ran across uh, a copy of that in an environment, and it had actually successfully hidden itself from numerous types of queries, but there remained a single instance in the registry of where it was running a file out of the recycle bin, and it registered a service component to start, and that registry key was still there and still visible. So they essentially had one unswept corner, and because of that one unswept corner, this anomaly was able to be identified, and thus the machine was identified as compromised.
0: Tell us how your technology works and, if you could, differentiate it from what most of us know, which are the big multifunction endpoint protection suites that have been around for you know, the better part of a decade, a decade and a half.
1: The antivirus products are kind of a... Ki- most of those are like kitchen sink products. They, they do prevention. They do detection. Um, they're largely signature-based. Particularly because they do prevention in an automated way, they cannot afford to have false positives. So analytical methods of trying to identify what may look suspicious are not within the realm of their, of, well, not within their realm, but simply because if they were to throw a false positive and block something that was legitimate, that would cause a huge uh, problem for an enterprise customer.
0: Right.. Um, and, we, and there have been stories about that over the, over the years where they'll get a signature that, that mistakenly identifies, you know, some, some common Windows component or something, and all of a sudden everybody's getting blue screened.
1: Yeah, well, or, you know, potentially blue screened or other things are happening. But, but right. um, basically uh, a signature-based approach has its place in an environment, and that place is to, to detect known threats. We already know about this threat, and we can positively identify it, And so, it really isn't so much a detection as a protection. It's really a proactive block. This known threat, the same way you might block something at a firewall. Um, It's just at the host. So, really, it has its place. But where does it learn from? Well, typically, it learns from a you know a large research team that's evaluating everything they can find in open source in terms of malicious software, and they're building this signature database. there's no tolerance, like I said, to a false positive for a protection solution, but there's another problem, and that's in the detection side. If they were to throw false positives, and they do, a lot of technologies do throw false positives, um, the people in the secure operations center will have a lot of extra overburden being generated by that false positive, which, you know, again, causes them to have to work harder. Uh, they may not be able to follow up on all the events. Things get ignored things slip through the cracks and then you end up with statistics like a remote attacker will be in the network on average something like seven months before they're detected. Well, the root of that problem is that it wasn't detected on day one. And that falls back to the, we have to tune the intrusion detection stuff down so much that we start missing things. So the industry as a whole wants to move to more analytical solutions that are um, smarter in how they evaluate the targets. At a, at a log level and at uh, an intrusion detection level at the perimeter and net flow, again, like I said, you just don't have that depth of information to be able to follow up. I think most organizations have somewhere between a 15 to 25% false positive overburden rate at the sim today. If you can go out to an endpoint and examine what happened when that event was created, you can look at these fingerprints or splash patterns I was referring to to find out what happened leading up to that event. What was the user doing? Was it a drive-by download? Or was it a file that appeared in the context of a bunch of other files all within 400 milliseconds into the program files directory? And is that a legitimate piece of software being installed? What does it look like? Um, Typically, malware does not look like everything else in your network. It's normal. So if you can calculate a baseline and do a statistical outlier from that, you can identify things that look suspicious. But you certainly don't want to send that as an alert to the SIM because you don't know if it's actually malicious yet. You need to investigate it. And the data can be extracted off the host, file in the registry, build a timeline around events, extract memory for any components that might be resident. And that gives you a wealth of information that otherwise wouldn't have been available at the SIM. And now you can look and use this kind of pattern, pattern technique that I'm talking about to identify does this look suspicious? Give it a score. And that's how we do it. We give it a score between positive 1 and negative 1. If it's 0.8 to 1, that's suspicious enough to go to alert. Everything else, 0 to 0.8, that's the haystack. The data is there, and it can be looked at analytically, but we're still tracking those threats. We don't know if they're actually a true threat or not. We don't want to throw you know, an alert to the SIM yet.
0: Okay, so your, your product is really a... a um, uh, a tool that you really need to use in conjunction with some kind of security information management platform to make decisions about what might be suspicious or malicious or or not. Is is that correct? I mean, can it be? Yeah, used it's in a, a gap stand- It's a gap filler. Can it be used yep. in a standalone capacity? So, in other words, a company that didn't have a SIM or something like that uh, could they could they use this technology as well?
1: Certainly they could. Um, there, there are three basic use cases for it. Um, the first one would be, I have events already occurring at my SIM. I want to do an endpoint follow-up on those to be able to rack and stack them. I have a, you know, a component in my perimeter that you know, has an execution sandbox, and a URL just went by, and it says that's a threat. Well, now we go out to the endpoint and discover that Adobe Acrobat's actually patched at that particular machine, nothing detonated, there is no intrusion. That's the kind of question the use case number one answers. Are we or are we not compromised? Um, The other use case would be more of an incident response type use case where you want to go into an environment and you want, with very little friction and low cost of ownership, evaluate a large number of machines. That means not having to deal with the IT side of the house, not having to deploy agents, just give me a quick health check across this range of machines. That's another use case. But that's all it's going to be, a rack and stack of scores for things that were found there. Now, when those, when those come back, when those events come back, those artifacts, I should call them, when those artifacts are identified, we attach all the corresponding forensic evidence extracted to support whatever confidence score is there. But, but we are not an incident response tool. We don't allow you to go out to and arbitrarily interrogate hosts. It's completely automated. You just run it, and you get your list. Um. So, yeah, that's another way to run it. And, you know, companies could use it for interesting uh, use cases like let's say there's an acquisition, there's an M&A activity, and before they attach the new company's network to the existing network, they want to evaluate it to determine where the risk level is on it. These are other ways to use it, and it wouldn't introduce any new software into the, into the company's environment, so it would be very easy for them to run this.
0: Yeah. Okay. So what you said as one of your guiding principles that everybody hates agent-based systems. Um, and so yours is not, but tell us what it is. How do you get all this data off of endpoints without putting an agent on the endpoint itself? What, what is the mechanism by which you're extracting the information that you need to do the analysis?
1: The technology isn't black magic. Most people think it is at first when they hear it because it, it just sounds magical, but it's not. Um, it's, it, it's using, <laughs>
0: Sometimes it's it seems using like them. it
1: is. <laughs> I know, I know. It turns out um, Microsoft, and it, so these are some of the uh, restrictions on how you can use this. Um, it's a Microsoft Windows-only solution. Unfortunately, it will not work on your Linux servers or your Android BYOD environment because what it uses is the Microsoft built-in RPC calls that have been part of the management platform in Windows since it was created. And uh, it also uses some WMI. And these are protocols that, for technical folks, um, are, they'll understand what, what I mean by that. So these have to be nodes under management. They have to be part of the domain. And if that is the case, then they can be analyzed with the solution.
0: Okay. So Microsoft still uh, 94% of the operating system market and probably a bigger share of the targeted endpoint uh, (laughs) uh, environment, right? Um,
1: It's not hard to convince a potential customer that the Windows environment is their largest attack surface area, and nearly all targeted attacks or even non-targeted attacks arrive through one of those workstations, either by the user's behavior there or, you know, spear phishing email. Um, But typically it's somebody with a workstation connecting out of the environment, to some resource on the net somewhere, whether it's a uh, social media or as a cloud application, or they're downloading their email from somewhere else and then they get their attack, you know, and they click the link, so to speak, and then boom, detonation, splash pattern, installation, subsequent download of additional payload, and then command and control behavior following that.
0: Right. So, one of the, I mean, there are a lot of companies that have come along in recent years. Um, Offering alternatives to traditional endpoint any malware, you know, FireEye, uh, uh, CrowdStrike, and all these kind of threat, advanced threat companies, um, you know, I, uh, Invincio, which is a, a sponsor of my blog. Um, but uh, one of and Invincio the... is a really
1: good solution. You
0: know, it's right. just
1: you know if you want to if you want to get a protection solution onto an endpoint you probably are going to have to go with something agent-based because it has to be resident all the time. Right. But if it's okay for you to detect something and then go get it and quarantine it in a reasonable or near real-time manner, you don't necessarily have to have that agent on the machine.
0: Right. So my question was, one of the strengths of traditional anti-malware is that it can do removal and remediation. So how do you... Given that you're talking to these companies, um, how do you address those questions of, well, we want to get rid of this. How do, you, how do you help us do that?
1: We made a strategic decision early on to not attempt to do protection because we feel that the customers will bucket um, solutions into protection and detection as separate separate verticals. And just to keep it simple, we just went with the, with the detection the information that we're bringing back can be used by a protection solution. For example, if we know the IP address or DNS for the CNC or the command and control for a particular threat, and that's attached to the artifact, well, then that certainly could be put in a firewall, or you could go, you know, if you had a, a packet recorder, maybe a net witness box, you could maybe take the user agent string that we identified it was using and go do a search in there and find additional communications right. elsewhere in the network that match that pattern. So So the intelligence is there extracted off the endpoint that's certainly useful for protection and quarantine
0: what are i mean you've done a lot of work um uh, with companies, both on a consultative basis and also just through the through the you know products based companies that you've started, I mean what are the biggest challenges that they're having today? It seems like the the you know the 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 what you hear coming out of everybody 's mouth is oh, you know there are two types of companies those that have been hacked and know it, and those that have been hacked and don 't know it and you know everybody's been hacked it 's just a question of you know how long they 've been on your network. Um, it's all kind of grim and fatalistic sounding, but uh, what, what is your experience just out there? And what are the problems or challenges that you really see companies having, organizations having with regard to malware threats um, and, and, and infections?
1: Well, it is true that every, every network, after it's reached some size, but that doesn't have to be big. It'd be a couple hundred nodes. If it's being used to get on the Internet, yes, it is going to be infected. What it's infected with may differ. It doesn't necessarily mean the Chinese are breaking in to steal your plans, but guaranteed you're going to find at least some level of uh, adware, spyware, and other types of malicious software in there that it's hard to figure out how it's being used. It's not necessary, necessary that you may even understand how it's being used. The fact is it gives somebody who's not part of your organization remote access to your organization. I don't think it needs to be said any further than that. It needs to get out of, the, out of the network. It's not supposed to be there. That's right. So it represents a risk. Um, even if it was just adware, it's still a risk. Because I, just yesterday, it was amazing. I found this piece of what I thought was adware and it was one of the most brilli- brilliantly written kernel mode rootkits I'd ever seen. It had its own independent indus channel just to have its own TCP IP stack to communicate so it didn't even use normal sockets on Windows. Wow. And I'm looking at this going, is this really just adware? Why do they spend so much money to have such a hardcore developer build this if it was just doing app? You know, there's an entire underground where, where access is bought and sold. If somebody gets a botnet into an environment, just because it's in a botnet doesn't mean it's not a targeted attacker because the guy that runs that botnet can sell that remote access to somebody else. Sure. And they do. Yeah. So how do you really know who's running it? You don't. You don't know who's running it. Just assume the worst and get it out of there.
0: Right. I mean, ideally, that botnet operator will know. You know, I've got I've got a, a hook into the following. You know, uh, uh, environments. You know, uh, you know, Fortune fifty companies and Fortune one hundred, and you know what have you? Um, what? Um, so you you asked me a question about the one of the big problem yeah, areas. Yeah. Um, I think
1: lack of endpoint visibility is one of the largest, and I'm not going to be the only uh, company out there stating that. You know, you look at tools like FireAmp, you look at obviously Bit9 Carbon Black, you look at CrowdStrike, you look at FireEye Mandiant, they're all looking at this endpoint as a tremendous information-rich source to help do validation of events as well as to detect new threats that are emerging. The thing that I really encourage people to think about, though, is whether or not the solution they're looking at for their endpoint visibility is over-engineered for what they're trying to do. If they're trying to simply answer the question, is there a compromise or not, I posit that putting a kernel-mode-hooking, API-hooking agent that records everything on an endpoint is completely over-engineered to answer that question, when in fact the forensic evidence that's already on the machine can answer that question. And, and I'll just say that you know, digital forensics wouldn't exist as an art and a science if it weren't possible to answer questions as to whether or not there's a compromise using the forensic data. It's precisely because it's there that these techniques exist for extracting them and analyzing them. So again, why put something out there that's going to record more information if it's true that the information necessary to answer that question already exists in your enterprise? Simple. Do you now, f- I would love to have a recording tool at that level that's recording everything for reverse engineering purposes in my lab when I detonate a malware and I want to try to figure out what it does. And that's, that's a beautiful use of the technology. That's when it's appropriate to have that level of instrumentation. I'm just going back to this idea that do you really need that level of instrumentation if you're trying to answer just that simple question, do we have a compromise? Right. If you do, if you do have a compromise, you're going to switch gears and you're going to probably use a traditional forensics tool and I won't mention any of the vendors' names, but we all know who they are, and they're very powerful at extracting data both off the hard drive and out of the memory of the computer. Those tools are mature. That's when we're going to switch gears anyways. I'm not trying to solve that problem. I'm not trying to be an incident response tool for that kind of a level of investigation. Go back to what I said. I'm trying to solve this gap. There's an ROI in that gap where you've got an event, but you don't know if you really have a compromise yet. I can automate that. And that's what you might call automating first response, doing the 10 things that a competent investigator would do anyways if they reached out to that endpoint manually with their existing tools. Well, let's automate that because there's a huge overburden in that, just in that gap. And if I can just remove 5 8% of the false positives out of an organization, that's a huge financial impact.
0: Hey, Greg, thanks so much for taking the time to come on uh, and talk to Security Ledger. I appreciate it. Thank you, Paul. Best of luck with the new company.